Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. Today, you're about to listen to one of our specials, the broadcasting of live events that we hosted here in Austin. In this case, it is a very special one, or more than one. It's a part of a series. In late November, as you might already know, the Austin Institute hosted journalist and author Sora Bamari. While with us, Amari gave a talk at the University Catholic Center where he talked about his personal story, his journey to the faith, and the dangers of our contemporary culture and its wokeism with Father Jonathan Rea. On the following day, he discussed three chapters of his latest book, The Unbroken Thread, with three of our scholars and senior fellows, Professor Jay Budzachewski, Professor Robert Kuhns, and Professor Margaret Neros. We are now releasing those conversations on our podcast, and you can find them on our YouTube channel, too. As you enjoy the conversations, remember that all these events are possible thanks to your generous donations. Today, you're about to listen to the third episode of the series, What is Freedom For? Lessons from Alessandro Solzhenitsyn, a conversation between UT professor of philosophy Robert Kuhns and senior fellow of the Austin Institute too, and Sarabamari. Enjoy. So again, in the spirit of not just uh, summarizing the arguments of the chapter or recapitulating, I'll try to tell a backstory about the chapter on what is freedom for. And the backstory is that that's not the chapter heading that I picked for that chapter. What I had was, are you too free? And my editor at Random House insisted on making it what is freedom for. And why that was, I no longer, no longer remember. But ultimately, I get around to answering um, the question, are you too free? Um, and not so much, I think, the question, what is freedom for? Uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that happen in book writing. And so, you know, I, I'm actually, I'm a very easy edit, meaning like when sent back the manuscript and it's marked up, I accept 95% of things. And that gives you a little bit of leeway to say, hey, I accepted 95%. Let's, let's, let's have you. Down, back down on the five percent, and in, this, in this, and he did as well, except in this case where he insisted on. Um, I just would, he he felt like "Are You Too Free" is too reminiscent of other chapter titles in the book. Again, I, I disagree, but it is what it is. Um, and that chapter was written um, as the novel coronavirus pandemic was unfolding, and there was just this wonderful episode that suggested itself for me, because each chapter in the book is um, uh, uh, framed by some kind of contemporary story before we get into the meat of the answer to that question and the biography of the figure who's used to illustrate the, the concepts. And that story was, I don't know if you remember this, the New York Times covered it, but the, the, the print headline was something like, they have 17,000 bottles, bottles of hand sanitizer and nowhere no way to sell them. And it was about a pair of brothers, I think in Tennessee, um, who at the height of the pandemic had this idea of buying, renting a, a U-Haul truck and going into every small out of the way grocery store, uh, gas station, what have you, and buying up hand sanitizer. And then they would relist them online um, uh, for you know, orders of magnitude higher than the price they'd paid for them. And they were, they were making a killing. They weren't the only two. A lot of kind of hustlers um, had this idea of, 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 of doing this. But they were especially uh, <laughs> kind of outrageous in how, how they went about it. And, 
Um, and so they were selling them on eBay and Amazon. Of course, eBay and Amazon are happy, right? Because they get a cut of every sale of that kind until there was an out backlash uh, online, which then meant that um, uh, the, the uh, online stores took down the, the listings. And now the, the two brothers had no way of, of, of selling these. And so to me, it's, it, it just sort of perfectly encapsulated the irrationality of the idea that um, you know, market actors left to their own will always uh, produce rational outcomes that are good uh, for society. But also, there was something very, um, uh, again, this, the brothers are just hilarious, because the New York Times int interviewed them, and um, you know, one of them said, you know, I'm really doing a public service because it, it costs me a lot more than the two bucks I paid for them. So uh, what I'm trying to do, I'm helping people here, you know. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, obviously there are laws against price gouging in our society. Nevertheless, I, I felt like you could illustrate this idea that, um, um, that, uh, that deregulation in every realm of life has not necessarily conduced to a to a uh, a good society in this case in the in the market uh, realm, and to and to then kind of draw this concept, I I use Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, because, as as most of you know, um, he was a very uh, an unhappy exile. Uh, he, um, you know, having written the Gulag Archipelago, and um, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. Uh, Nobel Prize, uh, eventually is, is uh, expelled by the Soviet Union, makes his way to the West, and then is confronted by what he sees as a West that is also, um, uh, as he puts it, uh, you know, less than worthy of man's full potential. And it, he obviously, for the most part, stays away from public events. You know, he's constantly uh, asked to give commencement addresses and speeches and events of this of this kind, you know, whatever, and he avoids most of them except when Harvard asks him to give his, the 1978 commencement address, and he delivers his famous uh, speech, "A World Split Split, split Apart," and shockingly, um, he he does not sing as his host may have expected as he puts it in his diaries, which, by the way, the diaries are only now becoming available in English, thanks to the University of Notre Dame Press. And it was very fortuitous for me as a writer to have access now to these diaries in English language. Um, he puts it in his diary that I did not sing the ode that, uh, to the, the great Atlantic for fortress of liberty that was expected to me. Rather, he painted this picture of the two worlds split apart, of uh, the Soviet Union, which he had escaped, and uh, the United States or the West to which he had fled, as worlds that were not, in fact, split apart. That, as he described it, that um, you know, there's the lawless tyranny of Soviet communism, and uh, which seeks to again liberate man from all restraints on a collective scale, and it leads to um, the mass monstrosities like the Gulag. And then there is the um, liberty of the West, which again seeks to. Um, free the individual from all natural and traditional constraints, but has resulted in this culture that is very, at the one, on the one hand, um, legalistic, on the other, um, chaotic or degraded. And again, I enormously benefited from 
uh, the availability of the uh, of Solzhenitsyn's diaries of exile, because I could use the story of the the I could count what he said at the at the Harvard commencement address, and then show you the backdrop of what he was experiencing as an exile, um, uh, which um, led to the conclusions that he put forward in in. Uh, the actual speech, which was the intellectual event in some ways of the of the late 1970s, and the, among the things he was experiencing was that you know the, the various publishers um, constantly sought to exploit the writing that he had done. Um, for example, he insisted that the Gulag Archipelago be sold at a lower markup than other books of, the, of similar length, because his mission was to get the message out of what was happening in the Soviet Union. And yet, you know, in one country, a publisher refused to do that. In, in Britain, uh, another publisher would um, uh, uh, kind of constantly bring out these pirated, mangled, and badly translated versions, which they had somehow secured rights to legally. Um, or the publishers themselves would constantly go to war with each other, which hindered the actual release of the book. And he would sometimes try to kind of reconcile them, and, but no, they insisted on being litigious to the end. And then more mundanely, you know, he wanted to build this house in rural Vermont, finally, when he had had it with, with cities. And, and um, the subcontractors and contractors he hired to do his house would nickel and dime him at every turn, do a shoddy job. And, and last one, I mean, he took it. He traveled with his wife to Italy at one point, and um, to, to Mariana's homeland. And he he saw in you know an ostensibly free country. He saw all the kind of monumental glories of Italy covered in graffiti, like down with fascist police, Christian Democrats must die, long live proletarian dictatorship, and all this made him wonder: Is this what we what are what we're fighting for in the Soviet Union? Uh, the nations that are trapped behind the Iron Curtain. Is this really, is this freedom? Is this what we're striving for? And um, so yeah, I mean, that's the backdrop to the story, to the, to the book's um, uh, um, substantive claims are very much enriched by now, we can now put together what Solzhenitsyn was saying publicly in places like the, 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 the um, commencement address, various the, the letters he wrote to Soviet leaders and so on, and what he was experiencing as an, as an exile in the West. So that's, I'll stop there. Again, I think it's more worthwhile than to recapitulate things you can read in the book to, and, to, and, and more speak about the backdrop. Thank you, Professor. Thanks, thanks, thanks Rob. Yeah, so I want to extend my thanks to the Austin Institute uh, for hosting this event, for all of you coming, and uh, for Sarab to come to Austin and for writing this wonderful book, which I enjoyed immensely. So I'm actually old enough to remember 1978, uh, maybe some of you are as well, and I remember very keenly the reaction that uh, Sarab described to, to Solzhenitsyn's uh, speech, uh, including from many conservative outlets like National Review, which was really puzzled by how he could not come out in, in defense of you know, the anti-communist West. Uh, but I was, I was reading a collection of these reactions, and it was interesting. George Will actually got it right. He defended uh, Solzhenitsyn in, in Washington Post. So I was going to quote him for a couple paragraphs, if it's all right. Um, he said, modern politics emphasizes the sameness, not the diversity of people. It seeks to found stable societies on the lowest, commonest, strongest passion, self-interest that is tamed by being turned to economic pursuits. In such societies, law does not point people towards elevated lives. The law's only purpose is to organize and encourage attaining materialism. 
Modern politics assumes that it is not virtue that makes people free, but freedom that makes people virtuous, at least if virtue is de defined down as the pursuit of pleasure with minimum legality. Um, and then such a society produces what social media calls an atmosphere of moral mediocrity, paralyzing, well, paralyzing man's noblest impulses. Um, now it's significant, I think, that the George Will today, 2021, would disavow every single word <laughs> that uh, I sometimes wonder what happened to George Will. He's in, he's in a witness protection plan somewhere, I guess. But, uh, but uh, um, in fact, in a way, Will himself is exhibit A of the taming power of materialism, I'm afraid, um, to, to, to exactly what he was talking about in 78. But I wanted to um, mention, do a couple things. First of all, I wanted to say something about the relationship between political freedom and spiritual freedom, which is one of the themes of, of the chapter. Um, sort of describes a character, Shukov, from Solzhenitsyn's the uh, day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, who achieved, who's a prisoner in the gulag, and he achieves a kind of spiritual freedom in his attitude towards his bricklaying. So again, I'll quote uh, Sorab here for a couple paragraphs, that's all right. Uh, Sorab's simple conscientious insight into what is Shukov. right. So, Shukov's insight. Shukov. Yeah. Did I say Sorab? Yeah, yeah sorry. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> Oops. Uh, Shukov's simple conscientious insight into what is right and wrong, decorous and indirectorous, save him many indignities, and finally leave his interior castle of freedom intact and undefiled. Thanks to his perfectionism, each new brick ends up flush with the outside wall and dead level widthwise and lengthwise. The reader can almost feel Shukov's satisfaction at a job meticulously done well. Whom does Shukov serve by throwing his flesh and soul into bricklaying in a gulag? The Soviet Union, Stalin? Well, yes, I suppose, in an abstract sense. But mostly he's serving his comrades in Gang 104. Within the narrow margin, a slit, really, of autonomy, the gulag affords him. He chooses to do what he ought to do. So is, is Solzhenitsyn's point, and, or, or Sorab's point here, that political freedom, the kind of freedom that uh, Shukov has lost as a result of his confinement in the gulag, is, is the point of that uh, political freedom is of no value? Um, well, no, right? I think the point is um, that, that the spiritual freedom is the only thing that matters. Clearly not, right? Clearly political freedom or corporeal freedom is, is important. Without it, we cannot acquire or, or, or exercise our virtue, uh, including the virtue of charity. So in fact, as Chora points out, even in the gulag, the prisoners are left some minimal uh, freedom of action, some slit of autonomy, uh, even if it's just laying bricks uh, well or badly. So Solzhenitsyn's point is that it's not that external liberty is of, is, is of no value, but that, that it's, it's not the only value in the political realm. It's not even the highest value, despite the claims of Frank Meyer and other conf fusionist conservatives of, of the mid-20th century. Political freedom or the freedom of physical action or social action is primarily a value of, as a means to higher spiritual ends, especially the end of mutual charity. The problem with liber liberalism is not its preoccupation with individual liberty as such, but the spiritual innervation that results from its refusal to, refusal to consider any of those higher values. So Solzhenitsyn's critique of the West, I think, lines up very harmoniously with an, an, an indigenous tradition of American conservatism, including the new humanists of the early 20th century, Irving Babbitt, Paul Elmer Moore, Southern Agrarians, T.S. Eliot, Russell Kirk, Richard Weaver, and others. Uh, and he's also, I think, a prophet for today's post-liberal liberal or integralist uh, movement, of which uh, Saurabh is, is a leader, along with uh, Adrian Vermeule, Ch Chad Pecknold, Gladden, Gladden Pepin, Patrick Deneen, and others. So like, like Solzhenitsyn in, in 1978, uh, today's post-liberals are often attacked through the pose, posing of a series of false dichotomies. Either one's a fanatical authoritarian who wants to bring back the Spanish Inquisition, or you have to accept the liberal compact in totality. 
Um, and I think the key idea of integralism, as I understand it, is, is, is that of a common good that is fundamentally ethical, communal, and civic, rather than a mere aggregation of individualistic or materialistic values. So how can one be a post-liberal in a religiously cultural and pluralistic society? That's the question I sort of want to end with. And first of all, a few, th a few thoughts of my own. First of all, um, our current theological diversity is not set in stone forever. It's been the product of specific developments, and so both intellectual and social. So it's quite possible that a new consensus may emerge in the future. Uh, secondly, even now, there's a great deal of common ground on ultimate ends uh, sh shared by disparate traditions, which is, a, I think, a theme of, of Sarab's book. Um, thirdly, we must recognize that every society is intolerant about something, and this includes uh, our liberal society today. The only question really is where, when, and how to be intolerant. Uh, Post-liberals recognize the role of prudence and, so, and actual circumstances in, in determining these limits. And then finally, we can always practice laissez-faire at the level of local communities rather than that of individuals. This is an idea that was uh, proposed by Robert Nisbet, American sociologist, years ago. Uh, the modern liberal state is fanatically intolerant of local variation or any kind of establishment of, of uh, religion or morality, even at the local level. So let me just conclude quickly with a, with a single question for Sarab. Um, so the book itself, I'm kind of stepping way back from the particular chapter I was assigned, but if we look at the book as a whole, it's quite eclectic in its approach. We have chapters about the Russian Orthodox Solzhenitsyn, Catholics like Newman, Protestants like C.S. Lewis, Jews like Abraham Peschel, Confucius, the ancient Stoic Seneca, and even a modern feminist, Andrea Dworkin. Now it seems that Sorab is advocating, at least implicitly, I call a kind of eclectic integralism, uh, which is at least prima facie a kind of contradiction in terms, right? Um, and we are supposed to reunite politics with religion, but not with any particular religious tradition. So I want to pose a question, not really as a would-be opponent, but very much as an, an aspiring uh, uh, supporter, uh, a friendly critic. Um, now, there are two levels at which we could examine this question of eclecticism. First, we can ask you know, just how broad the eclecticism should be, and specifically, should it include all the branches of historic Christianity but no more? Should it include Judaism, all the branches of Judaism? What about Islam, Confucianism, and so on? But those are hard questions and really beyond my expertise. So I'm going to jump up a level, so to speak, to a meta level, uh, as we philosophers often do, and ask what's the, what's the criterion for including a tradition in a, an eclectic establishment, if we can put it that way. Um, and um, yeah, what's the criteria? So I've got four suggestions, four or five suggestions that I'll throw out briefly and let's sort of uh, respond and see if any of these make any sense. Uh, the first one would be what, what I might call circumstantial, circumstantial eclecticism or kind of ex expedient uh, uh, eclecticism. So in this, pro in this, in this approach, our eclecticism is entirely a matter of prudential accommodation to actual circumstances. So in the ideal situation, we would prefer to establish the true religion. But since that's impossible in the actual circumstances, we accept a more eclectic establishment in its place. So this concession is based on expediency, and we would gladly abandon the eclecticism if, as, long as, it's, as soon as it's no longer necessary. The second option would be ideal eclecticism. So now, now I want this position to be consistent with a, with a strong missionary impulse. This is the kind expressed by, by Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, where he says, you know, I, I would that everyone, I would to God that everyone was like me except for my chains. Uh, so my ideal eclecticist would welcome the conversion of the world to the one true faith, but they recognize this is not going to happen on this side of the eschaton. And so they are content to an aim within the horizon of, of the present age at a permanent pluralism of established faith traditions. And they see this permanent pluralism as a positive good, at least within the political realm. 
Now, I think there are two more intermediate positions to consider. Uh, third one is what I call contractual eclecticism. So I have in mind here something like a reliance on the law of nations, the jus gentium, as a middle ground between the natural law and the positive law. So in this picture, eclecticism results from a kind of grand international social contract, perhaps tacit and informal, between the world's great religions. Each religion would prefer to be uniquely established in every nation, but they all recognize that this is impossible. So as a second best option, they would all prefer to share equally in an eclectic establishment in nearly all nations. Hence, each religion gives up permanently its aspirations to be a solitary establishment anywhere in exchange for the right to be part of an eclectic establishment almost everywhere. Uh, now, practically, this would mean that only sort of inclusive traditions would be included within the establishment, and only those that uh, have, a, have a kind of bargaining chip to offer, those that might have been become solitary establishments and had a, had a real uh, chance of doing so. And then fourth and finally, uh, pious national eclecticism. So in this view, we would include in the eclectic mixture all and only those traditions that have played a significant role in shaping and sustaining our national institutions, or perhaps our local institutions. So uh, from 50 to 150 years ago or so, this would have meant Protestantism, mostly, and perhaps Catholicism and Judaism as well, but probably nothing more. And then a fifth possibility, finally, would be some kind of eclectic mixture of these eclecticisms, right? where you pick two or three of these, and I can certainly imagine that as well. So I guess my question for Saurabh is, uh, are any of those attractive to you? And uh, if not, what, you know, what's, the, uh, what's the remaining option? Thank, thank you, Rob, for those rich remarks. I want to start with your observation about, uh, about what happened to George Will. Um, I think the the best explanation, the most charitable one, is one that implicates not just him, but a lot of thinkers of that era on the American right, which is that there were a lot of important conversations happening around, for example, the 1978 uh, commencement address, but other issues as well. And unfortunately, they were, they were short-circuited by the way the Cold War ended. Now, we're happy that the Cold War ended. We're happy that um, Soviet communism was removed from the face of the earth, this cancerous um, uh, regime. Nevertheless, um, a kind of paradoxical tragedy of that outcome is that um, a lot of people in beginning in the 1990s said, you know, well, clearly then everything about the system that prevailed was superior, and we don't really need to debate first things anymore. Uh, and we just move on and just build uh, liberal democracy where, in fact, you know, someone like another critic of, of liberalism during the Cold War, uh, someone like Agosto del Noce, del Noce, the great Italian thinker, would say you know, um, that in too many ways the West had also accepted the metaphysical first premises of Soviet communism and just said, you know what, our system can build more and better washing machines faster. And the, you know, and our washing machines won, you know, compared to whatever like those decrepit Soviet vehicles and appliances. Um, and so I think that's what happened with George Will. And um, I do praise him in the book as one of the few, maybe the only major American thinker at the time, public intellectual, who said, "Hold on a second, Solzhenitsyn has a has a a point here." Um, I want to also address, which is a question that's often posed to me about just the sheer eclecticism of the unbroken thread. People are almost surprised by it. Um, you know, you know, Sarab Amari, the you know, political Catholic who makes you know, such strong claims for Catholicism in the public square, and yet in a book about um, which traditions to listen to, you not only have, <clears throat> you not only have someone like 
you know, jo Joshua Heschel or, or C.S. Lewis, which are at least, you know, you can imagine why they'd be there, but Andrew Dorkin, who we're gonna, who we're gonna discuss, whom we're going to discuss in the, in the next session. Um, and, and the answer is that, um, I'll give a personal answer as an author, you know, I have, um, let's say I accept tradition with a capital T, which is um, one of the sources of authority for, for Catholics. But I, fi I find that these other traditions with a small t, Stoicism in the case of Seneca, or um, some aspects of, of um, second wave femi feminism in the case of Andrew Dorkin, uh, or, or someone like um, Hans Jonas as a Jewish neo-Aristotelian critic of Gnosticism and so on and so forth, that um, big T tradition and small t traditions can cohere. Um, and the, the way that they, they all cohere, um, in, in, I, I'd be curious if, if Rob agrees, is that um, in, in, each case there, in each case there's this kind of structural um, uh, shape to each chapter in which these other traditions each insist on some set of limits, um, whether naturally imposed in the case of the body with Andrea Dorkin or Hans Jonas, or whether imposed by tradition in the case, for example, of Sabbath with Abraham Joshua Heschel, that, um, it, that has been guaranteeing our true freedom, and the loss of those limits um, has, has um, left us ultimately less free. So I think this is an insight that is at home um, with a with a John Paul II in Centesimus Annus, where he war even as he welcomes the triumph of of democracy over Soviet communism, he warns that by not accepting um, the common good uh, or or the sanctity of life, these democracies that just won could become totalitarian very easily. And John Paul II says this in. It repeatedly in Centesimus. So, um, so I was comfortable doing that, and to, to invite the reader to say that look, uh, there is this, there is this universal tradition, and maybe even someone like Andrew Dworkin could belong to it in this complicated and in and fraught way. Um, um, then so, so finally, to get to your question about um, um, what that means in terms of the posture of a post-liberal or an integralist, whatever you want to call it, um, with respect to uh, 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 this eclectic integralism, or you can say, uh, my friend Josh Hammer used the phrase um, ecumenical integralism, which is a term that I, I welcome, and, um, and so have um, Gladden Pappen and others taking up Josh's idea of, of ecumenical integralism. And I guess, I don't know, of those, I would pick um, uh, the pious national integralism is the one that is closest to my own thinking right now, because I'm very much turning to uh, sources within the American tradition within which you can articulate concepts like the common good, within which you can um, raise up limits to um, uh, limitless acquisitive um, capitalism or vicious financialization of the economy and so forth because I'm so much more concerned with these material issues. And those sources range from, you mentioned some of them, from dirt farmers before the revolution, Jacksonians, um, 
uh, uh, without getting canceled, you know, um, Justice Taney in, in, in the Boston Bridges case. Uh, Taney obviously was the author of Dred Scott, but he also had some thoughts that were worthwhile on issues of political economy. Then fast forwarding to the agrarian uprisings um, uh, and, and then into populism and, and some aspects of progressivism. This is what, what I think we have to work with. And um, the historic Protestant traditions, Catholics are part of it, uh, you know, our, our Jewish friends are, are part of it, and um, it, it also grants some, something like the, uh, the, the circumstantial or prudential integralism that you talked about, where ideally a, a Catholic political actor may seek to have true religion enshrined in the public square, um, now, to what extent that would exclude other faiths is a question we can debate. That might be the goal, but you recognize in 2021, in our material reality, that's not possible. So what else do you have? So of the two choices that you, of the five options that you put forward, I would say it would be, my position would be some mix of circumstantial slash prudential integralism and um, pious national integralism, which would draw on this whole counter tradition stretching from dirt farmers to progressives in the first half of the 20th century. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, and, you know, looking back, you could argue that a kind of eclectic integral, integralism is the American tradition, in a sense, right? It's only relatively recently that, you know, Rawlsian sort of liberalism becomes enshrined, as the, or Millian uh, liberalism becomes enshrined. Um, there was this Protestant uh, ascendancy that sort of uh, dominated our culture for a long time it was taken for granted by the, by the founders in lots of ways. I was just thinking about, I was just thinking about the Constitution. Um, you know, it was it was ratified explicitly in the year of our Lord, 1789. Right? Uh, they they were taking for granted a kind of uh, ecumenical uh, integralism at that point. So yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast. What we can't not talk about. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.